0: Let's start this way this morning. Reach into your pocket or your handbag or your purse and grab your wallet or your checkbook or your iPhone case or whatever it is that, that is the repository for your stuff. Right? And I want you to hold it. You can caress it if you'd like. Feel the supple leather. What you hold in your hand is the temple of the 21st century. This is where the God of mammon lives. And we are the target of messages throughout the day, every day, that says what we ought to worship lives here. And it ought to dictate how we feel about ourselves, about our identity, our security, our well being, our importance. And all of these are a direct consequence of what lives in here, in this little piece of leather. And when it comes to Jesus and the values of the kingdom of God, this becomes an area of deep trust and obedience. So as an act of trust, I'm going to ask you to take this and give it to somebody next to you. Now, if it's a spouse, don't give it to them. Just find somebody else and give it to them. There you are, Patty. You're welcome. Now, here's what I'd like to do. Uh, We're going to have the ushers come forward again. (laughs) We're going to take an offering, and and I want you to give like you've always dreamed of giving. Put credit cards in there. You can put self. Just. Yeah. (laughs) This morning. We start this fall series called The Treasure Principle, a set of teachings unapologetically on, on money and possession. Don't give the wallets back yet. Yeah, I didn't say you could give those back. Hold on to those. Yeah. If you get bored, go rifling through them. See what's in there, photos. Yeah. We all have stuff, Right. We see it, we want it, we buy it, we display it, we insure it. We compare our little pile of stuff with other people's pile of stuff. We talk about whether they have too much stuff in their pile. We envy and we pass judgment on their stuff. We collect our own little pile, right? And we imagine that somehow if that pile of stuff gets big enough, that means for us success and security and abundance and predictability and control, we get a house, right? And then the minute you get your house, you get the stuff that that begin to pile into it. And you keep getting more and more stuff, so eventually you need to get a bigger house, right? And, And then, I mean, comedian George Carlin, not one of the great spiritual leaders of the past century, but he had a great expression. He said, a house is really just a pile of stuff with a cover on top. That's... Some people have actually survived in fact for most of history people survived without owning one Jesus for example and well a lot of members of this coming generation in the GTA according to one writer there are now 50,000 different storage facilities in North America offering 1.5 get this 1.5 billion square feet of space for people to store their stuff, right? The 1960s as an industry, it didn't exist at all. So it has grown up in the past 50 years. It's grown now to the place where we spend $18 billion a year for people to store our stuff. That's bigger than the music and the video industry combined, if you want a sense of the scale of that. Some people just have a gift for acquiring stuff. (laughs) William Randolph Hearst, you know that name? Classic example. He's the personality behind the number one rated movie in the history of Hollywood, Citizen Kane, right? Hearst was a, I guess you'd have to call him a stuffaholic. He had all kinds of stuff. He had a 35-year-old Egyptian mummy. He had medieval Flemish tapestries. He had centuries-old hand-carved ceilings. He had some of the greatest artwork of all time. And he had a house. He built this house specifically to house his stuff. 72,000 square feet was the size of his house. He owned 50 miles of California coastline, an astounding 265,000 acres. And he collected stuff his whole life, 88 years And then you know what he did next? He died. (laughs) Right. He died. Short-sighted. Poor planning. Now, people go through that house still as a museum, and they all stop at some point in the tour and say the same thing. Man, that guy sure had a lot of stuff. Yeah. You heard the story of of the widow's mite, that incredibly sacrificial gift of a couple of small pennies. You heard the story of the rich young ruler. I want those stories in your ears because those are the stories we'll be reflecting on in your small groups and on Sunday mornings for the next few weeks. But there's one other story I want to draw to your attention. It comes from the gospel of Luke in chapter 12. And it's the story of the William Randolph Hearst of the Bible. Jesus deals very concretely with the story of this man who had a seven-stage plan for life. Here was his plan. Stage one, harvest large crops, ever larger year by year. Stage two, build bigger barns to hold the larger crops. Stage three, achieve financial security. Stage four, five, and six, eat, drink, and be merry. Stage seven, remember to never die. It's stage seven, of course, that's the real hang-up, right? And, and describing the life of, uh, of this wealthy fool, Jesus doesn't say that he's evil, and he doesn't say that he's wicked. The devastating assessment of his life, though, is given in that one word that becomes the title to the story. He's a fool. He's a fool. People go through life. They get stuff, and then they die, and they leave all that stuff behind. And What happens to it? The kids fight over it right? And they go through, they pick through all those piles of stuff, and they decide what they're going to take from that pile and add to their own pile. Now it's my stuff. And then they die, and somebody else goes through the pile, and the stuff gets passed down, and people come and go. And arguably, you could say that that nations go to war over this kind of thing, over stuff, that families are split apart because of stuff, that husbands and wives will argue more about stuff than any other single issue, that our prisons are filled with both, both street thugs and CEOs, both guilty of the crime of trying to acquire more stuff illegally. I want you to turn in your Bibles with me, or turn on your Bibles, however that works. Matthew chapter 6. This is going to be our theme verse for the whole series, so you're going to come to know this text really well over the next four weeks. I hope that you're going to commit it to memory. This is the foundational text for the treasure principle. Jesus says, Matthew 6, verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves Treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Will you say that with me. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That is what Randy Alcorn calls in this little book the treasure principle. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth. Why? Not because they're bad, the things of the earth aren't bad, but because they won't last. Listen to what he says. When Jesus warns us not to store up treasures on earth, it's not because wealth might be lost, it's because wealth will be lost. Either it leaves us while we live, or we leave it when we die. No exceptions. In a sense, what Jesus is really inviting us to do is to time the market. I don't know if there's any people who, who work in the markets or manage portfolios, but you, you know that one of the ways to try and be successful in the marketplace, it's risky, but is to bet on the market cycle and trade ahead when you think it's going up or when it's going down. You try and time the market. Well, well Jesus is inviting to do just that, time the market. Transfer your funds from a fallen earth before that market tanks. Into heaven, which is insured by God Himself and which will soon replace the world's economy forever. Time the market. Because according to Jesus, storing up treasures isn't just a thing that's wrong, it's a thing that's ridiculous. It's foolish, He says. Why? You can't take it with you, right? You know that. You've heard that so many times. You've said it. You can't take it with you. But but to that declaration, Jesus adds this stunning qualification. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. That, in a word, is the treasure principle. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Anything we try to hang on to here will be lost. Everything that we put into God's hands will last forever. Whatever the treasure is that we try and store up here on earth gets left behind. Whatever treasures we try and store up in heaven will be waiting for us when we arrive. Hmm. Think of it this way, if you will. Imagine imagine you're going to spend a week at Motel 6, right? Right? That's not quite too opulent. Motel 6. And in preparing for that week, how likely is it that you would take all the money out of your bank account and spend it decorating your motel room? I mean, how profitable is it to clear your accounts in order to purchase rare works of, of art or, I don't know, Elvis on velvet or however you would decorate it? Right? It's not very. Why? Because you know that that motel room is not your home. You're there just for a little while. You'd be foolish to waste your treasure on a temporary residence. So Jesus says it's wise to store up treasure in what's eternal. What is that? God and the people that he's made. All of this, these chairs, this floor, the roof above our heads, this this is not your home. It doesn't mean it's not significant, it doesn't have purpose, but this is not your home. And it lasts only for a few seconds when compared to the eternity that God has for us. It's not that Jesus is saying, don't store up treasures in Motel 6 because it's not important. It's saying, don't store it up here because you're only going to be here a little while. If you're going to stay up nights dreaming, dream about something bigger. Dream about something that, that involves more than just upgrading your motel room. And this, perhaps, is where the teachings of Jesus and his followers most radically diverge from conventional teaching. Listen to what, what Paul says. He's writing to his, his young friend, Timothy. First Timothy 6. Hey, Timothy, remember this. We brought nothing into the world, and we take nothing out of it. This is how Job put it. Naked I came from my brother from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. That's how we arrive, naked and penniless. And that's how we're going out. Right? In between, we get to put some stuff on our bodies and a little bit in our pockets, but none of it's really ours. We just borrow it for a while, and then it all gets handed back. One speaker illustrated this, I think, very dramatically when he littered the stage with, a lot of stuff. And then he came out on the stage with a a little package of stickers. Couldn't quite read what the stickers said from a distance in the audience, so he told them it has just a single word on them. The word is temporary, he said. Then he wandered around the stage talking about the items and placing a sticker on them. Everything that I'm putting a sticker on, he said, is temporary. It will fade away. But we invest our emotions in these things because when we acquire them, they give us a little thrill. And then we think the thrill will last, but it doesn't. It fades. And so eventually, so eventually will everything that we acquire. He went on to say, if you're living for what you see up here today, living for these things that are temporary, temporary satisfaction, temporary fulfillment, temporary meaning, your life will never be certain. And you'll be left with a terrible emptiness because it's all temporary. People build their lives around these things are temporary and squeeze out things that are eternal. and It ought to be the other way around. I want you, if you would, to think with me for a few minutes about two categories. If you can, you can visualize two sets of stickers and where you're going to put them. In fact, you might even want to go home and do this today, especially if you have kids, some post-it notes. Run around the house and the yard and, and place them around. Here's my treasure box. I, I couldn't pack everything in, but I brought a little bit. There's the keys to my car. It's not even fully paid off yet, Edgar, but when, there it is. It, it, if ever something were temporary, that's it, right? They, they feel like they start to rust the minute you take them off the lot. And every once in a while, they just come and they grab another little piece of you. This needs to be fixed, that needs to be maintained, this needs to be done. An incredible blessing, mind you, but temporary. What else is in here? Ah. Uh-huh. A survey plan of lots 42 and 43, plan 672, Peel Township of Toronto. Minroy, that's our house. <laughs> there you are. I, actually, I put the tax bill in there too. Uh, temporary uh, we found that out shortly after we took possession we found out just how temporary that roof was when it started to leak just how temporary the basement was when it flooded and the walls needed to be replaced temporary temporary it's all <laughs> it's all fixed uh, you can't see what this is but uh, that's a little hard drive actually it's a kind of a big hard drive on this hard drive I have 10,000 volumes of a theological library and thousands and thousands of albums, a lifetime of listening to music. There you are, Miriam. One swipe of the magnet, and it's gone. All gone. Temporary. I love tools. I have too many of them. This was a favorite hammer of mine until it got left out in the shed a couple of seasons. And can you see what happened to it? Rust, right? Yoko. (laughs) Give it to Pauline. There you are. Not just that, everything in the shed fell victim to the same thieves and bandits. They even look like thieves and bandits. They're small. They have a little black mask that they wear. And when the raccoons nested in our shed, they were the vermin that chewed through all of our stuff, all of our camping gear, all of our chairs, all temporary. If that's all the temporary stuff, what is it that's eternal? Well, it's not that. That's my cell phone. How did that get in there? Yeah, that's actually, that's version 6 of the phone. There's been a 6S, a 7, a 7S, an 8, a, a version X. Now there's an X Max. and It's six generations behind. It's just temporary, right? How about this, though? It turns out that in the end, the one thing that you can stamp permanence onto is people. And that's my wife and my kids. but Every human being that you ever see is a cleverly disguised receptacle of eternity. And everything that Jesus was on about when he said the kingdom of God has come near was about making the love of people the central value of God's world. When you hear kingdom of God, just think, This is what it means to invest in people. That's the kingdom. The objective of life is to be rich toward God and to be rich toward people. So when Jesus tells the story of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12, he sums up the lesson in this single sentence to make sure no one would ever miss the point. So it is, he said, for everyone who accumulates riches for themselves, but are not rich toward God. The object of life, Jesus said, is breathtakingly simple. Be rich toward God. Store up treasures in heaven. Your life, with God's help, can be a source of pleasure to the God of the universe. I mean, that's an astounding thought, isn't it? That you can put a smile on your, on your God's face just through your choices and your activities. What is it that it means, being rich toward God? Being rich toward God means growing a soul that's increasingly healthy and good. Being rich toward God means loving and enjoying the people who are around you. It means learning about your gifts and passions and putting them to use for the betterment of people. Being rich toward God means being generous with your stuff. It means making that which is temporary become the servant of the things that are eternal because it's, It's not that this is bad. This is incredible. Buildings, cars, bank accounts can be incredible gifts when they're used as levers that operate the machinery of God's kingdom. When the temporary stuff gets invested for purposes of eternal significance. How you doing? Not an easy message, is it? The reality of this world for for you and I, is that we were born into somebody else's kingdom. My life came to me as a gift. I didn't get to choose it. And if I'm honest, I realized that it's suspended by a slender thread that I didn't weave and that I on my own cannot sustain. There I am. Many are the purposes of a human heart, the scriptures say but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. As you work through this material over the the next few weeks, uh, you're going to come across a series of principles, six of them in total. I'm going to give you just the first one this morning to, to take with you. Treasure principle key number one. God owns everything. Just... Get that out of the way at the beginning, because everything else builds on that. God owns everything, and if he he owns it all, that means at the very best, I am a steward of what he owns, or to use Alcorn's language, I'm just a money manager. Consider a few statements from Scripture. Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Deuteronomy 8, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Haggai 2, verse 8, the silver is mine, the gold is mine. Don't tell commodity traders this, it'll drive them crazy. The silver and gold are all mine, declares the Lord God Almighty. I've been around churches a long time, almost as long as some of you, I expect. Do you know the question that we hear most frequently when we begin to talk about but stewardship and the place of stuff and, and money in our lives. most common question that we get is a question around tithing, right? If you're new to the church, tithing is a, it's not a made-up word. It's, just, it's a word that's based in the Old Testament. And it has to do with the intentional setting aside of a portion of what God has given to us. In the case of the Old Testament, the tithe was 10%, right? So here's the question. Pastor, do I have to tithe on the net or on the gross? What a gross question. Translation, how little can I give without God getting mad at me? Or the implied question, how much of my stuff do I get to keep and not get into trouble with him? It's kind of like going to your mom before Mother's Day and say, hey, uh, hey, mom. What's the minimum amount of money that I need to spend on your gift without it actually getting in the way of our relationship this year? Listen to what King David says. I love this verse. 1 Chronicles 29, verse 14. King David said to the Lord, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as all of this? He doesn't ask what's the least that I can give and not get God ticked off. Who am I that I get to give like this? that I get to be a part of building your kingdom using my stuff, temporary stuff for eternal purposes. One day we have a chance to give an account for the things God has entrusted to us. Boy, that's going to be a moment of great joy or of deep regret. Not my stuff. One day I get to give account. One of the most amazing descriptive sentences about the people of God very early on, the earliest days of the church, was just this. There were no needy people among them. They had stuff, they shared it. There'd never been a community like this in the world. And out of that community and its sense of values, of the importance of people and of sharing what God had given to them, out of that grew orphanages, Hospitals and universities, and most of the charitable institutions in the Western world. Why? Because somehow they understood very early on that there was a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and handle our stuff. Let me give you a great example. Luke chapter 3. John the Baptist is preaching, he's a fiery preacher. John the Baptist is, is going at it, and when he's done the sermon, a group of people gather around him, and they, they ask how it is that they would, that they would give, uh, have evidence of their repentance. Remember, his primary message, repent. Change your lives. Well, you can reorient them around things that matter. Repent. And so they said, what will be the signs of repentance in our lives? And he gives three answers. Everyone should share clothes and food with the poor. Secondly, Tax collectors, those who are you know, working with money already, shouldn't pocket more than they need. And thirdly, soldiers, civil servants, should be content with their wages. Now, here's the, the crazy thing. Nobody had asked him about finances. They wanted to know how to demonstrate the reality of spiritual transformation in their lives. So why the focus on money and possessions? Our approach to these things is central to our spiritual lives. You see it in, in the story of Zacchaeus. Remember, a wee little man up in a tree, Jesus comes by, happy as he, or how did that song go? Yeah. But when his life gets radically reoriented around things that matter, things that are eternal, look what he says. He comes back to, to Jesus and he says, Lord, look, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay that back four times. Acts chapter 2, which we're going to dig into next week, talks about those early converts who were willing to sell a lot of what they had in order to give to things that mattered. We already shared the story of that poor widow who just jumps off the page of Scripture with her sacrificial gift, two coins. Mark 12 says she, out of her poverty, has given everything that she had. Why is it that way? Could it be that God uses giving to transform us in his image? You gaze upon Christ long enough, and you can't help but become more of a giver. And if you give long enough, you can't help but become more like Christ. Michelle, I asked this, and I didn't have a chance to get your answer, but I wondered whether... Part of the lyric in your song, isn't that great quote from Jimmy Elliot? You're nodding yes. Elliot, one of the martyrs of the Christian mission in the 20th century, his famous line that we've sung already, for he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what they cannot lose. Let's pray. My God, would you take the stories and the evidence, the testimony of Scripture? Would you breathe life into it through your Holy Spirit? And allow it to do its renovating work in each of our lives. And where there might be obstacles or barriers or hindrances, would you take them down? where attitudes need to be reshaped and priorities reallocated, would you do that work? And God, at the end, increase our capacity, not just for generosity, but for joy. For joyful giving. For freedom from the gravity that just too much stuff exerts in our lives. And the ability to see what happens And things get invested wisely and well in what matters most. In you and the people that you love. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.